them. What I was saying was, it's one thing to give someone space to share, but it's a whole other conversation to empower someone to take that space. And um, I felt nothing but empowered and believed in by um, the leadership here at Harvest and just friends and, and the people that we've been walking with. So thank you guys so much. And um, yeah, the other thing that I, I just really felt when I was preparing was um, I was quite overwhelmed with the fact that I would get to share with the congregation of Harvest because as I look out this evening, there are so many spiritual giants in the room and, um, you know, people, some of you who've walked with the Father for longer than I've been alive. There's others of you who have, um, who are just out there doing incredible things in the spheres of society that you're involved with. There's incredible mothers and fathers in the room. And um, so it's a real privilege that I get to stand and just share some of what the Father's put on my heart this evening with you all. Um, and yeah, I hope, hope we have a really good evening together. So just a quick um, introduction. Um, my husband and I have been a part of Harvest Church for two months, uh, sorry, two years to the month. So it's been an amazing time. We've absolutely loved it. And um, since being here, we welcomed a little baby into our family. So she's 10 months old now. And um, yeah, life's been very full as we've adjusted to this new role of being parents, but we've absolutely loved it. And um, me, from Monday to Friday, I found myself uh, in the digital marketing field, which I really love. But um, my real passion, um, my ultimate passion really is this. It's, it's walking with the Father. It's getting to dive deep in the scriptures. It's getting to share the things that he's put on my heart. So it's a real treat that I get to do that tonight. So if you have your Bibles or your apps or your preferred um, method of choice, please will you turn to Luke 7 verse 18. So this is going to be the scripture, the only scripture that we'll look at. So nice and easy, you can uh, put your bookmark there. And um, Luke is um, a book that I've actually been working through in my own personal devotions. And so when I was asked to share this evening, the Father brought back to remembrance something that he had sort of revealed to me in a moment a few weeks ago. And if I'm honest with you, this is not the typical message that I would share. We all have our sort of things that we gravitate towards as speakers. And um, whilst I'm, I'm really excited to share what I am, it's not like message that I would usually gravitate towards. But I'm so thankful because in the service, from the worship to what Warren shared to, I think the word that, I think it's Kathy shared as well, um, spot on and, and a real confirmation for me that this is actually something that the Father is on tonight. So that's exciting. So the book of Luke is um, one of the four Gospels, and um, Luke, the author, was um, a physician by occupation. And in some senses, although that was his physical occupation, his spiritual occupation was almost to dissect the life of Jesus and um, take us deeper into the life of Jesus and um, who he was and what he accomplished. And the author of the Passion Translation, Brian Simmons, uh, said something really beautiful in his introduction to the book of Luke, which I just love. He said that the Gospel of Luke is intent on doing an autopsy on the life of Jesus and revealing that he is indeed the hope of the world. I love that. Jesus was the hope of the world then, and he's still the hope of the world today. So let's read. So starting from verse 18, it says, and I'm reading from the ESV. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, 
or should we look for another? In that hour, he healed many diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So we'll stop there, and there's, there's more to the scripture as it carries on. But this is what I wanted to just look at this evening. So as we read from verse 18, it almost seems like we're starting off in the middle of an idea. So um, it says that the disciples of John reported all these things to him. So basically what's, what's happened just before this portion of scripture that we've read is that um, the disciples of John the Baptist have witnessed Jesus do some phenomenal miracles. And two of these miracles uh, were the healing of the centurion's servant, which is basically where Jesus spoke the word and the servant was healed in a completely different location. And the second miracle was um, the raising of a widow's son from the dead. So two phenomenal miracles, famous miracles, we still talk about them to this day. So the disciples of John then go back to John and give him an account and a report of what they'd seen Jesus do. So John the Baptist at this time, he actually found himself in prison for reprimanding Herod. So John was certainly no shrinking violet, a bold and courageous man, and he found himself in prison. So these disciples come to him, they give him an, an account, and I can just remember, I can just imagine in this moment that John's mind is now starting to tick, and now he needs some answers because he's heard some pretty extraordinary things. So he calls two of these disciples to himself, and he then sends them back to Jesus with a question, which at first glance seems like a simple question, but it's actually a loaded question, and it's a question that was on the hearts and lips of most of the people of the day. So he sends them back, and, he asked, and they ask Jesus this, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So those words, the one, they can actually be translated as the expected one, or the Messiah, or the Savior. So this wasn't just any question. This was a very loaded question. So they go to Jesus, and they ask him this question. But instead of answering, and in true Jesus fashion, he can never seem to give a perfectly logical answer to a perfectly logical question. And I know if I was around in those days, it would have annoyed me, because I love, you know, one plus one must equal two, and, you know, you've got to be able to figure it out. So he doesn't answer them at all, almost as if they'd never asked. Instead, he goes on and he heals the sick, raises the dead, casts out demons, and he displays the works of the kingdom right before them. So basically, at this point in time, this question that John, John's disciples had asked Jesus was the question on the lips of every Jewish, Jewish person of the day. Basically, the Jewish people were familiar with the ancient texts and, and all the ancient prophecies that spoke to a coming day when a coming Messiah would arrive and when he would set people free from everything that they were going through. And so um, I can just imagine John now receiving the news of these miracles, and he must have been thinking, well, possibly this could be the Messiah. However, John finds himself chained and in prison and he must have been thinking, well, surely this is not the guy, because if this was the guy, why would I still be here? So at this time, what I like to call Messiah fever was at an all-time high. So the Jews were ripe and ready for a savior to come, and we can make light of it, but in actual fact, the living conditions and what these people were subject to in their day 
was brutal. So the Jewish people in this particular passage in this moment in time, they were part of the Roman Empire, which was a vicious empire and one that no one would ever want to be a part of, um, given the brutality and the violence and um, poverty that people found themselves living in. And um, funny, this week, um, Steve suggested a movie, and we hardly ever agree on movies, and he didn't even know what I was speaking on tonight, and he suggested uh, watching The Apostle Paul, so we watched it, and I loved it, and although it was set um, a few decades after this point in time, it can give you some really interesting insight into what the Roman Empire was like, and some of it's almost a bit stranger than fiction. It just seems like a bit too out there to even believe that people were doing this kind of thing to one another. So anyway, the Jews at the time were living under this very oppressive system, and many of the people that would actually follow Jesus around and those who would listen to him as he ministered in the different villages, many of these people would have found themselves as part of the lower socioeconomic classes. So the Roman Empire was a very class-based um, society, and um, these people would have been involved in subsistence living, fishing, and farming. And they would have been taxed anywhere from 30 to 70% of their produce. So if you can imagine, they then had to give this back and what their produce actually went towards was sustaining the upper echelons of society. So incredibly unjust, incredibly um, brutal and oppressive for these people. So now you can understand just some of why they were so desperate for their escape. They were so desperate and ready for their Messiah to come. And every morning when their feet hit the ground, they were just hoping could this be the day and could this be the guy? So when John sends his disciples back with the question, it was the question that everyone was thinking and it was a very loaded question. Then we see Jesus not answering their question, but instead he tells John's disciples to go and tell John what you've seen and what you've heard. In other words, go and tell John what you've experienced. Okay, so that's that's really key as well. What have you experienced? He didn't give them a black and white answer. So what does all of this mean for us today? And it can, this can really be a passage that can be easy to gloss over and you know, how, does this make, how do we make sense of this for ourselves? And um, whilst we sit 2,000 years later and thankfully the world has improved so much when it comes to human rights and, and just different things like that. But if we're really honest, um, we still face the same enemy today as the Jews did back then. They thought that they were waging war against flesh and blood, but it was never about that. And here we sit, we have the same enemy, and whilst we don't live under the Roman rule, we certainly do live in a world system that is oppressive. We live in a world system that is governed by fear, and some of what Warren was sharing when he spoke earlier, and there's the sense where a lot of the oppression that we find today is actually on an emotional level that many people are living under. You know, we're seeing um, levels of depression and anxiety higher than they've ever been in our culture and in our society. And, you know, this is obviously for different reasons, but some of it is around people just, you know, feeling like they're stuck on the hamster wheel of life and they can't get off, they, you know, they're part of the system. Other people feeling like they're struggling to keep their head above water, struggling to make ends meet, cost of living rising. Other people, um, you know, who engage in, in social media, some people are feeling just the pressure to keep up with the Joneses, have to act a certain way, think a certain way, look a certain way. And there's so many different pressures externally that can leave us feeling really oppressed, can leave us feeling 
um, just really weighed down by the system of the world. Then of course in South Africa we have our own um, set of challenges that we face and every country has their own unique ones and I don't have to harp on too much about that. And I don't say any of this to cause a sense of fear or dread, but just to say that the question that was on the lips of the Jewish people of the day is actually a question that is still on the lips and still in the hearts of many people today, including Christians. Are you the one who is to come or shall we keep looking for another? So Jesus came at a time, and in this particular passage, he came at a time when people were looking for answers and when people were looking for an escape from their current situation. And here we sit and we seem to be in a fairly similar time where people are still looking for an escape. They still are wanting an out from the realities and the things that we face. And we, we've all been there and we all, we all um, experience those things. So just like the Jewish people and just like John's disciples went back and asked Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? In our sense, we have to ask ourselves, is he the one who came or are we looking for another? Is he our peace, or are we looking for another? Is he our joy and our happiness, or are we looking for another? Is he our healing, or are we honestly looking for another? Is he our breakthrough, or are we looking for another? Is he our soul satisfaction, or are we looking for another? Now, of course, I know that Jesus is not all we need. He's put us on this earth. He's put us in families and in communities because he knows that there are needs of ours that not only he can fulfill. And he's well aware of that. But there is a question as to who is sitting on the throne of our hearts. Who is sitting on the throne of our hearts? And so many Christians today, because of the pressures that we face in life, many of us find ourselves actually sitting at the rapture bus stop. And we're waiting, and we're waiting for our escape, and we're waiting for Jesus to come back so that everything will be okay. And many Christians aren't effective in the world around them. They're unaffected in, in their circumstances, their own, or the world around them because they're just waiting for that escape. And many of us are actually looking for Jesus to fulfill in his second coming that which he's already fulfilled in his first. So we really, we, we're looking for a time, we're looking ahead to the future for him to do the very things that he's already done. And I feel like tonight he's wanting to remind us of who he is and what he wants to do in and through our lives. And just as what was shared earlier, I feel as well that there's a sense of the Father just ever so gently as only he can do of dethroning some illegitimate things in our hearts and taking the seat there once again. You know, maybe as I, I read out this list, maybe there are areas where because of fear and disappointment or maybe things not looking the way you thought they would look, you know, that expectation conversation that the Jews were having with, with the Messiah and, and, and sometimes he doesn't move the way we hope he's going to move. And then what can be easy for us to do is those areas of our life, we can just ever so subtly dethrone Jesus and he no longer has a place of influence in that place of our lives. And instead, we take the seat of authority. We become our own gods in certain areas. Or maybe you put your spouse there, or maybe you put your boss there, or maybe you put your salary there, or whatever the case may be. But tonight, I really feel like he wants to remind us of who he is regardless of, of what's going on around us and regardless of the circumstances. And so often, it really is just an issue of expectation. Now, I'm not saying we don't face real issues, but so often some of the offenses that we knowingly or unknowingly have against God is because we are hoping that he's going to move in a certain way, and he doesn't. You see, the Jews 
the Jews read their current experience into the ancient text. And they thought, well, we're highly oppressed right now, so naturally when we read the words that the Savior will come and set us free, naturally that's going to look like um, overthrowing the Roman Empire and setting us free in that way. But Jesus had a whole other plan in mind, something that was far greater and something that was far more eternal and far-reaching than just that. So it's so often an issue of expectation that we have. So just going back to uh, the text for a moment in Luke 7. So obviously we see in the beginning John now wanting his intellectual answer. So John's heard, heard the account. He's wanting his intellectual answer. Could this be the guy? Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the one who's going to set us free? And more than likely, that question was wrapped up in a lot of doubts. Because if you were expecting a Messiah to set you free, and that's what the, the prophecies had said, and you're still chained in prison having to send your disciples on your behalf because you can't even physically go there, surely you're not really thinking that this is the guy because he would have first set the captives free like he had promised to. So... They go to Jesus, and instead of giving them the intellectual answer, he performs the works of the kingdom. Now, I think there are many, many reasons why Jesus doesn't outright say that he's the Messiah. There are a number of reasons for this, but one of the reasons I believe is because he wasn't after the minds of the disciples. He wasn't after just handing out some black and white answer to them. He wanted them to experience firsthand something of his nature, something of who he was, and then they as individuals had to come to a place of who is he to me? And I can imagine that each of the disciples might have given a very different account when they eventually got back to John um, because of how they'd experienced Jesus, because of how they had felt in the moment. You know, maybe one of them had a relative who was facing something that, Je that they'd just seen Jesus heal. You know, wouldn't that have struck a chord? So it would have been different for each of them. And I feel like for us, Jesus wants to give us an experience of who he is so that our faith is not just a cerebral faith. It's not just this intellectual faith where, you know, one plus one is equaling two all the time, but it's an experience of his nature and it's, it's an experience of his person. And sometimes I even think that it's so easy for believers to, to fall away from the faith when, when times get tough and they do. They get tough for all of us and we've all been there. But if you have had an experience with him, and if you have had an encounter with his power and of who he is, that can't be taken away from you. And when those wilderness seasons come and when those testing times come, that will be what you cling to. I also love in this passage that Jesus knew full well who he was. He knew he was the son of God. He knew he was the Messiah. And that is what then enabled him to go out and to perform and demonstrate the works of the kingdom, to heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons. And the same is true for us. When we really resolve in our hearts, who is this Jesus? Is he really the son of God? When we really join our faith to who he is in his nature, then his person and who he is starts to just flow out of us. And the world around us starts to change and the world around us starts to look very different and our situations also start to change. So we live in a world right now that... Um, and especially us in South Africa, although um, we're not necessarily in the Western world, if you look at it geographically, our culture and our thinking and all of that is largely um, influenced by the West. And obviously we have our beautiful African influence as well, but um, a lot of our mindsets have been influenced by the West. 
And Western culture right now is actually governed by what they're calling secularism. So I'm still learning a bit more about this myself. But secularism essentially says that it wants progress without presence. And it's okay with having God as a figurehead, but he's impersonal, he's not at the center of everything, and he's definitely not powerful. So does that sound quite familiar about with the, the culture that we live in and the societies that we live in? Another um, sociologist and theologian, Peter Berger, he says this, and let me read it so I don't get it wrong. He says that Western culture is set up to make you doubt. It's actually, our culture is, is set up to make us doubt. So again, I don't say any of this to cause a sense of fear and dread, but it's so important to know the days that we're living in because if we just live our lives on autopilot, then the current culture and the popular culture of the day is gonna rub off on us rather than us rubbing off on it. And we live in a world where it's so easy to just consume all the time. We wake up and we're consuming and we go to bed and we're lying in bed and we're consuming. And it's a lot harder to create. And I've actually challenged myself to change my mindset and to try and consume a little less and create a little more. And um, a lot, easier said than done in the world we live in because there's so much coming at us all the time from, from many, many different angles. Um, but it's so important to know this, this culture that we are part of. And um, another very interesting um, study that I came across recently was actually a study of millennials. So a disclaimer, I am a millennial. I'm a millennial who loves church. Like, do we even exist? And um, <laughs> so, yeah, millennials get a bad rap a lot of the time, and this little study probably won't uh, change that. But um, anyway, it was the study on millennials, and it must have been done in the States, and um, basically they took two um, separate camps of millennials. So the first camp identified themselves as conservative in the way they voted, in their belief systems, and they were very verbal that we are conservative. The second study was on liberals, so their counterparts, and they were voted liberally and they believed liberally and they spoke liberally and, that, and they were liberals. And then they took the study a little deeper. And what they did was they started then analyzing their spending habits, analyzing their sexual preferences, analyzing um, the movies they watched and so on and so forth, and it went down. And when they had finished the study, they grouped all of the data together. And the interesting thing is they could no longer tell who was who. So everyone just looked the same. So all it was, essentially, was this you know, passionate, really just intellectual, this is who I am, this is what I believe, and it puts me against you, and there's this you know, distance between us and this you know, polar thinking. But in actual fact, there was no substance changing the way that they lived. You see, Jesus, he reflected a different culture and he reflected a different world. The way he lived, the way he spoke, everything was countercultural. And when we walk with this person, Jesus, we also get to shape the world around us and it gets to look different. It's not an elitist type thing, it's not a we're better than them, us against them, it's, it's none of that. But it's a sense of when we really have a revelation and a personal experience of who he is, then we start to, to change the brokenness around us, we start to shape the world around us and it starts to look a little bit more like the world that he comes from. So just as in the passage, it's not, it's not a cerebral, it's not an intellectual thing. It's a faith that's based in our heart. You know, who do you say that he is over here? Is he the one who came or are you looking for another?
But now what happens when the, the questioning comes, the questioning seasons? What happens when the difficult seasons come? You know, to be honest with you, Steve and I have had the hardest two years of our lives. You know, we've been through some stuff and it's been hard. Um, and so, so I get it. And, and I'm really not trying to belittle anyone's current situation. I know that we're all facing a lot, of, a lot of real, you know. And Jesus actually said something which I um, find quite comforting and a little bit frightening. He says that in this world there will be trouble. If you're experiencing trouble, you know, it's Jesus knew. He's, it's not a surprise to him. But then he also says, but take heart because I've overcome the world. So in, this, in Luke 7, when the disciples come to Jesus with their questions, he's so okay with their questions. He doesn't rebuke them for asking. He might not answer, but he's okay with them. And Jesus is okay with our questions too. And I think there's an element of rawness, there's an element of reality that we get to have in our walk with him where our faith becomes a robust faith when we're coming before him and we're saying, but God, you said, you know, my husband's really good at this. He loves to remind God of the promises that he's spoken. And I think we need to do that. You know, sometimes I'm too accepting of things and, and he's like, but God, you said, and I'm holding you to this promise. And, you know, and the questionings come. But you see, when those seasons come, when those really difficult times come, we get to take what we've seen him do and what we've heard him say and we get to go back to our place of oppression. We get to go back to our prison cell and we get to prophesy and we get to say, but I've seen him do this and I've heard him say this. Just like the disciples went back to John's prison cell, they gave him an account of what they'd seen the Messiah do. We get to take an account of what we've seen him do in our lives and let it speak to where we are right now. Because so often the very things that we face and we actually have seen him move in that way before. You know, I know for me, I have thankfully had countless financial miracles in my life. Like more than I can count. He has been so good. But we're only human and, you know, you get to a time and there's, there's a financial crisis and what do you do? You question first up. But th I'm thankful that I don't have to go very far back in my walk with him to pull out those amazing testimonies of what he's done. And then that doubt and those questions can't stand for very long. They really can't. So what I, I like to call these experiences that we have with him, these encounters that we have with him, I like to call them stakes in the ground because they really are and they're really designed to be stakes in the ground where we get to put a flag in the ground and something that we refer back to in our walk, you know. And um, anyone who's been walking with um, the Lord for any number of time will have many of these stakes in the ground. You know, maybe it starts with your conversion experience and how you first met him and then it goes on and we have all seen him do phenomenal, phenomenal things. And I feel like even tonight he wants to remind us of some of our stakes in the ground. What are some of those moments that you've had with him where he's just been more real to you than your own hand in front of your face when nothing else mattered? And maybe you're here tonight and you, you're starving for more of those. And, and we, we want to do a bit of ministry later. But um, there's a reason why he gives us those experiences. Because we can't be argued out of them. It's not an intellectual thing. We have seen him move. We have heard him. And when we feel in this place of oppression, when we feel in this place of just being weighed down by the world, we get to prophesy into our own situation and say, who I've seen him be before, he will be again. So I wanted to share with you this evening one of my personal stakes in the ground and something that's really powerful um, 
a really powerful experience that I've had. And um, I've shared this with, with quite a few people, but not in a public forum like this. And um, it's really close to my heart. And I'm so thankful for this encounter because there have been so many times where this has been called up to remembrance when I've actually doubted the very nature of God. And um, yeah, so let me share it with you. So it was back in 2011, and I was in Redding, California, and I was in my first year at Bethel School of Ministry over there. And it was a Sunday evening, and my revival group was um, in what they called the great room. So it was like an overflow room, and we had to be in there for the evening service because we had to give um, Bethel guests and um, Bethel congregation members an opportunity to be uh, part of the, be in the main hall. So anyway, we were in the great room, and there was a, um, a screen playing. And I've personally never been a fan of like not actually being there, but it's just next door. Um, so maybe I had a bit of a bad attitude about it, but um, we were worshiping and the screen was up and it was Jen Johnson and Jeremy Riddle and everything should have been amazing, but it was just one of those times of worship where I just couldn't relate or couldn't connect. And we've, we all know it, we all know it. Um, and I know it's not about us, it's about him, but I don't know if I was tired or what, but I just, I just wasn't connecting, I just wasn't feeling it. And if I'm honest, I just kind of wanted worship to hurry up so I could just sit down and veg and just listen to the message. And anyway, about three quarters of the way through, um, I heard on the screen, I heard some murmurings going on, and immediately I just knew what was, what was happening. And because um, it had happened once before, but I hadn't been there. So I, I grabbed the hand of my roommate who was worshiping next to me, Haley, and I just looked at her and I said, glory cloud. And we ran and we beelined for the main hall. We didn't care if we weren't supposed to be there. We didn't care. We were going to be in the thick of what God was doing. And that was that. So we very politely waded through people down the side aisle. And we stopped and we stood. And we looked up and it was the most magnificent thing I've ever seen. It was this cloud of gold. I can't describe it in any other way. But it was, it was just the manifest glory of God that had demonstrated itself just with this beautiful fine gold and it, and it wasn't like you know you can see clouds in the sky and they sort of just hang there and they're stagnant this this had a life of its own this was moving and swirling from one side of the room to another and it was growing thicker and thinner and you know there are times in in the Lord's presence where he moves and you just feel like you have to be just uh, flat on your face there's there's this holy moment it wasn't that although I would expect it to be that and then there's other times where you just have to shout for joy and it's, there's this joy in the room. But this was the most intense peace that I've ever felt. And everybody was feeling it. It was like nothing else mattered. There wasn't a care in the world. And we just stood there and we didn't have any words. And we were just immersed in peace. And it was the most incredible experience. And I've... I know many people have tried to intellectualize this and, and ask God why, and I think that's good, you know? God, why did you move in such a way? And I don't think anyone really has the answer. And it happened a couple of times after that, and everyone saw it, you know, it wasn't the sense where, you know, only the seers were, were seeing this glory um, in their spiritual eyes, it was, it was there. And it's on YouTube, and, you know, it was this real thing that happened. And obviously, a, a lot of people doubt um, whether this happened, but you know what? Other people's doubts really don't matter because I know what I saw, I know what I experienced, and that has become such a powerful stake in the ground that has spoken to so many situations that I've gone through. 
And there have been times where the very existence of God has, has been questioned in my life. You know, you go through things and it's like this thought flashes into your head, well, how do you know that he's even real? Have you seen him? And all I get to say is talk to the hand glory cloud because I have seen him. And I'm like, that is just one of the stakes in the ground and we all have different ones. But I know, like I know, that he has been so real to me. And I'm so thankful for that encounter. And I, I understand that we live by faith and not by sight. But I don't know why he loves to move. And he didn't have to move in that way, but he chose to. And it was so powerful and it was so phenomenal. And it, it changed my life forever. And I know that I will always go back to that moment. And I'm so grateful that I got to be a part of that. But I honestly believe that that is just such a foretaste of what he wants to do something that I'm incredibly passionate about and I haven't seen it yet, although I've seen a foretaste of seeing the new covenant glory be outpoured upon the earth. And, um, you know, the 2 Corinthians speaks about um, Moses coming down from the mountain and his face shone with such glory. And then the scriptures say, but how much more is that which is unfading, the new covenant that we live under? I don't know about you, but I haven't seen someone's face shining to the point where I can't look at them. But that's what the scriptures say, and I'm desperate for more, and I've had a taste, and many would think that that would satisfy you, but it's just a taste that keeps you hungering for more. So I want to just ask you tonight, you know, who has he been to you? What have you seen him do? What have you heard him say? What have you experienced? And I just want to ask us again, is he the one who came, or are you still looking for another? because I can tell you that he is the one who came and there will be no other.